0: Hello, Texans. I'm Susanna, and this is the Susanna Gibbs Show. It's exciting time in Texas. It's 44 degrees outside, so apparently winter is coming. It's also Rangers playoff season. They're in the World Series, which is super exciting playoff baseball. Very fun and exciting to watch. And also, our insurance company was named Best in DFW. Gibbs Insurance Services, the sponsor of this podcast, we're very excited to have this recognition so thank you to all of you who uh, voted and participated we did not buy this award there's lots of awards out there you can kind of buy but we didn't we didn't even know this was happening i just opened up the paper and looked for insurance to see it was like i wonder who they voted for some rando people but no it was us so yeah yay very exciting So anyway, for those of you who have been with us for a while on this podcast, you know, we talk to artists, entrepreneurs, idealists, and lately, I've just been trying to hang on to the conversation because you never know where it's going to go. Race, equity, inclusion, feminism, politics, religion, banning books. And our next guest also took a turn like that. She's been an artist for forever. Forever and lots of good things to say. I hope you enjoy. Please reach out to us at Give Insurance Services. We love hearing from you guys about what you like and what maybe we could do different. And now, on with the show. So on the podcast today, I have Vicki Meek. She's a nationally recognized artist with works in places like the African American Museum in Dallas, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, um, She was also selected as one of 10 national artists to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Nasher Sculpture Center and was 2021 Texas Artist of the Year. Her multimedia works, I know, so cool, prioritizes and supports forgotten, left behind histories and identities.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you, Susanna, for having me.
0: I, I had such a good time going and looking at all of your works, as we discussed previously. We are both seasoned people, which means we've been around for a while, but it also means you have so many great things out there. It's really, your body
1: of work is so impressive. Thank you so much for that. I, I have been working a long time. Um, in fact, in 2019, I had a 30-year retrospective at um, the Houston Museum of African American uh, Art, And um, that was 30 years, but I had actually had more than that. But we we capped it at 30 years. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of my work that's out there. Um, I have been working in various media uh, in that time period. And it was really kind of, for me, a very interesting thing to see that much work. Because most of the work that was in that show was not what I'd been doing for the last mm, 40 years. Um, I had been invited to be a part of exhibitions and I made what, were, what are called discrete works for specific exhibitions. And that's the work that was in that, at that retrospective. So I had literally never seen all of that work together. And it was great. Oh, yeah, it was great to see it all together. So when you make pieces of
0: art like that for, it goes away from you, right? Like you don't get it anymore. Like if you make a piece of art for the Nasher, does the Nasher own it? Oh, no, 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 no,
1: no, That's not that works. <laughs> oh, they, okay. They want to, oh, uh, got it. What happens is you get invited to do an exhibition and you make a work for that exhibition. And when that exhibition is over, it comes back to you unless the museum buys it, which is what happened to my installation with the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. I did the installation okay. as a commission piece. Um, They saw it, they loved it, they wanted it, and so they bought it. Um, but that's not typically how uh, museums get work. You know, usually it's through their acquisitions commission a committee and then, they, you know, they go out and they decide which artists they want and they buy the work. So, um, you know, I had, well, I had to get some of it back from collectors, but I had a lot of the work that was in that exhibition in storage. So, you know, I just got it all out of storage and dusted it all off, made sure it was all okay and that's that's what got put into the uh, retrospective how many pieces of work do you have did I own? like if you tally them
0: all up well that just that you between collectors museums
1: that you own how many pieces of work I I think in that exhibition for the retrospective there were I think they had like 78 pieces 80 pieces or something like that and that and that Particular show, but my work for the last forty years has been installation, which you know is a ephemeral. It comes and it goes. I put it up; it's a it's a taking the gallery and using the whole gallery as the as the piece to discuss, and then all that comes down. And so I will use over and over again various um, items from the installations in other installations, which is what becomes my visual vocabulary. So people who know my work they um, can look at it and they can tell what I'm talking about based on the various and sundry elements that I have in the installation. So the Museum of Fine Arts Houston actually owns an installation, which is both a good thing and a bad thing because installation takes up a whole gallery so that the piece is not always up. You know, they put it up for special things or certain kinds of shows. And, you know, so the work doesn't get seen like a person who would have a painting in a a museum would, would get seen. Um, but it's what I chose to do for the last forty years because it's the medium that I felt I could best express myself.
0: Interesting. So you've so you had the tenth anniversary project with the Nasher, but you're working with the Nasher for a second time and they
1: awarded you a fellowship. Um, this is their first. will you talk a little This is the first fellowship. This is the, this is we, this is an inaugural fellowship, let's put it that way. Um, I what does it mean, I'm, this is a dumb question, but what does it mean when you get a fellowship?
0: Is it like they're going to pay you a certain amount of money or is it,
1: Yeah, they, yes, okay. They pay, they pay um, well, let me backtrack. Um, this is actually the okay. first time I've worked with the Nasher. Um, the first time oh, was okay. the, the site-specific um, work that was part of their 10th anniversary. That still exists. It's still on the campus. Of Paul Quinn College, I was, I made it permanent. It was supposed to be temporary, but I mm-hmm. convinced Paul Quinn that they should keep it, and um, and then the second time they they invited me to do a commission work for um, we were in the pandemic. Um, it was after George Floyd's murder, and they wanted me to do an installation in response, and that's the one "Stony the Road retrod that you may have seen online that. that I decided that rather than do something that was like really dealing with anger and the pain and all of that, that I should do what I've been doing, which are these healing rooms, basically, you know, where people can come and reflect and and really spend some time healing rather than hurting. And and that particular installation was done in 2021, I believe. Yeah, 2021. We had just come, we're just coming out of... The the um pandemic, um and it was great because I was able to use um some of the elements that I used in that installation to um make the installation that I did for my Texas um Artist of the Year, uh, exhibition because at the Art League of of Houston I had three full galleries to use. I, I mean, they have three galleries and they gave all of them to me for my nice. They normally do. You usually get one gallery. So I, I was able to use some of the elements from the Stony road we trod in this um, art league installation because I was once again looking at this idea of the ancestors healing us and being a part of our um, foundation and all of that. And so it was great. You know, I I, I I had a piece that related to a piece that I had done earlier in Dallas. But to go back to the inaugural fellow thing, what happened is after that, Installation was done. Jeremy Strick approached me about doing something permanently with the Nasher, and he said, "We want a permanent relationship with you. What do you think that should be?" And we tossed. So, um, anyway, we tossed around a few ideas, like artist in residence, and this and that. And and so, I talked with a friend of mine, um Rick Lowe, who who had done some residencies and what have you, and he said you should propose being a fellow because with a fellowship you can sort of design what it is that you want to do and then from there on, if they continue with the fellowship, then that's what the fellowship will be. So I decided I proposed that to, to Jeremy. He liked the idea and um they raised a bunch of money because, you know, the idea is that I'm an a fellow for them. So I'm not an employee per se, but I am on their payroll, um, okay, and, um, and then I decided that what I wanted was for this fellowship to address the idea of these um, disappearing communities in Dallas, of disappearing communities of color in Dallas, um, due to gentrification, and so that's what this 10th Street Historic District project is. It's an examination of how can artists, in some way, creatively. Um, commemorate and remember, or um, in this case, they're not gone yet, but they're, you know, rapidly disappearing. Um, How do we do something that will keep those stories alive, the stories of the people who live there? So, and this fellowship was awarded in December of 2022,
0: correct? Yes. And it's an 18-month fellowship. So, at this point, you are about halfway in, right?
1: Three years. Um, Oh, three years. Yeah, 18 months is this first phase that we're doing, and the first phase is 10th Street Historic District. But then we will roll into the um, Mexican-American community and and what, you know, Little Mexico is gone and, you know, other communities are disappearing rapidly. Um, And then the last one will be the indigenous community, which is uh, practically no one knows anything about that because it's been gone for so long. Um, okay. And in each case, what I'm doing is I started this one off. This is the African-American one. I'm rolling over to be just one of the artists. And then on health, Foz will become the lead artist on that project. And, and they will deal with their community. Um, and then we'll roll it over the third time to um, uh, Jody Yellowfish, who will do the indigenous community. So that I won't be the lead artist anymore after after this phase. Um, And that's intentional. I want these younger artists to have the experience of, you know, doing a project like this. Interesting. Do you feel like, because you were, for 20
0: years, you were at the South Dallas Cultural Center, which you retired in 2016. Yes. Did that make you more conscious of how to promote other artists? No. And giving other artists a chance?
1: No, I would say that that has been my career forever. Um, You know, I started in in arts administration in Connecticut as the Artists in Schools Coordinator. So I was promoting artists from, like, this is in the 70s. Um, So I've been promoting artists a long time. Um, And so, and it's just, I was mentored. I was mentored by Elizabeth Catlett and many other older women, Black women artists. And I feel like it's my responsibility to promote other artists, it's not just me out here in this world. I, I feel like it's hard enough for women artists in particular to get anywhere, um, and if we're not helping each other, who's going to help us? You know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so high on Vignette um, Art Fair, which is a you know a visual art fair that will open in uh, the first week of November. Um, that is all about women artists in Texas. And um, I curated that, uh, not curated it, but I juried it last year. And then I, the year before that, during the pandemic, they couldn't have an actual affair. Uh, so we did a thing where we awarded grants to five women artists um, just to mm-hmm. do that and had a pop-up exhibition in, in Debellum. But, you know, if we're not helping each other, I don't know who's going to help us. So that's one of the motivations behind my helping other artists is that, you know, artists are not Terribly revered in this country, you know, as you probably well know. Um, you know, I went to school in Europe when I was a kid and when I was in college. And it was amazing how people viewed artists there versus what they do here. You know, you hear the first question people ask you when they you say you're an artist. Was that your hobby? And, you know, and they, they were like, "Artista!" I mean, they were thrilled to know that they were talking to an artist. So, you know, you got to we got to admit that here we have to help each other. What do you, what is that?
0: Is are there less artists there? Is it more interesting or is it just? No, it's just
1: how much more important art is. Exactly. Art is a, something that is not just an add-on in, in other countries. Um, here, we all know that the arts for the longest time were just something the elite played around with. It was not something that the, ordin- and even now, not, the ordinary person doesn't typically know much about art because we don't teach it. We don't use it as an ongoing thing in our community. I mean, it's only recently that we've begun to see a real upswing in public art um, where people are engaged in that. Um, most of the public art programs now around the country in, almost require that an artists engage with community before they do the work. Um, but that's a new phenomenon. That's not the way we typically in, uh, engage with art in this country. And you know most of the art programs have been taken out of the public schools so kids don't get to grow up doing art like I did you know um so you know in Europe that's not the case in um Africa that's not the case in Asia that's not the case you know these these people are exposed to their art all the time One of the things that you you do
0: that I I really found interesting was the way that you look at there's two things as far as um, marking history through your art, but also exploring current themes. Like one of the shows, which I, I found, I love the title for this, and it's at your, the, the Tally Dunn, it was the Tally Dunn show. Um, what Point Do We Disappear? Black Women's Obsession with White Femininity. Um, would you talk a little bit about that show and what that was about? And
1: and sure. um, uh, So, I, first of all, I love that show. I love all my shows but very I- tied off I love this show um because this was first of all it was my first four-way foray into Dallas um because my art life has been in Houston um because I didn't want to compete with the local artists because I felt like that my, my job was to promote them um and what year was this just before we get too far down the road we
0: just this did is- that show um last year oh okay for some reason I thought it said 1980s but maybe that's what? different shows
1: as far as the what point do we disappear no that was just done last year oh, okay okay um and it's an idea that i had been mulling around in my head for a long time and it was my, primarily because i was exer- observing the way in which black women were basically losing their blackness um with the weaves and the lightening of the skin and um you know the various and the body the body image um in this and all that. And so I've, I've been, and I have a daughter, you know, who I, who is now 38. And so, you know, I had to intentionally raise her in a way that would make her never be ashamed of her blackness. Um, and that was a struggle because when she was in elementary school, you know, a lot of kids were teasing her cause she had natural hair. Um, and a lot of those kids hairs were permed. Um, and so, you know, I had been talking about, I got to do something that addresses, this whole notion of of um what black women are and, and have become. And and it particularly became amplified when I went to Africa and the African women were doing the same thing. And so there is peace in that in the show that is is entitled, If you can't be black and beautiful in Africa, where the hell can you be? And that was, you know, because I was looking at these African women wearing these, you know, these white European wigs and 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 bleaching their skin to their detriment because in Ghana, they had to outlaw bleaching. They were having so many health issues around these women bleaching themselves. Um, And so the show explores all of that, um, but it also looks at the things that we as black people internalized during slavery um, about inferiority. Um, So there was, you know, a, a, a through thread that looks at, sort of the idea of self-hate and what that produces in in someone. Um and the interesting thing was, you know, yes, I was talking specifically to black women about our issues, but so many white women were coming up to me and going, oh my God, why so res- this so resonates with me because I was told this, that, and the other, you know, all the things that they were told, you know, if you weren't blonde, you weren't pretty, if you didn't have blue eyes, you know, you that's what you should strive to. All of those things were coming out with. So I had Indian woman coming up to me talking about, you know, that's an issue in our country, too, this whole colorism thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do know that. As a matter of fact, it's an issue all over the world. Um, So it was a it was a a women's conversation that I was having, even though I was um, making it specifically about black women's struggles around beauty. Um, Mm. And I did a little mini film using my daughter. Um, that looked at this notion of Africa and how we have really sort of lost the the sense of beauty that comes from the African aesthetic and have, but that also so has Africa. Um, So it was, you know, that whole conversation was about the sort of universality of what this conversation is about.
0: So um, I'm looking at the Taylor Dunn, the Tally Dunn Gallery, how long have you worked with them?
1: Um, I This will be my second year of being with Tally Dunn because I never had gallery representation as an installation artist. I didn't really need it as an installation artist. But these works, as you can see, are works on paper. Um, they're big, but they're works on paper. Um, and um, I'm doing a lot of work with works on paper because I do, do a lot of travel internationally to third world countries, and I want to be able to do the art no matter where I am. And this makes, that makes it possible for me to do that.
0: There was an interesting piece that I found, and this is, you know, I like how you, how you tackle themes with your art, you know, with, with women and, and the self-hate of how we should look and how we feel. And then the history of the 10th street. And there was, um, and I can't remember exactly where I found it. And, and it, it it was like, I read so much about you before I did this. And I didn't write this one thing down to find it. But you talked about the effect of heroin on the Black community. I think it's on your website. You got the
1: 1980 from. That's what that was.
0: We talked a little bit about that
1: because you had a piece connected with it as well, didn't you? Yes, I had two. I had done two pieces. That was one that was um, left. Actually, that's with the collector too now. But um, it was done for an, an exhibition called Forever Free, uh, the um, history of African-American um, women artists. And that, uh, I guess that came out in 80, that, that toured in 80, it toured to several museums. And that particular piece was looking at the way in which the drugs dissipated the black community uh, during the late 70s. Um, and of course, you know, since that time, we have come to understand that the um, CIA was actually involved in the introduction of certain drugs into the black community after the um, black power movement well, you know, got so prominent, they had to sort of neutralize that community. And they, that's what happened. They brought drugs in, introduced drugs, and then that became so... So back it back it up just a little bit for somebody who's maybe not familiar so the black power
0: movement of the 70s and 80s and 70s really because really petered out by the 80s and so the cia said we got to figure out a way to
1: to to neutral deal with these folks yeah and and so they introduced heroin crack and um and heroin both were quickly sort of Available, all of a sudden, readily available, and we we now come to understand after, and this is well documented, actually, by the way, um, that those drugs were introduced by the CIA. Um, Where do you where is it where is it documented? Well, there are various people who um, historians who researched how did all this because you know it was like how did this happen, Um, and so they began to research, and so there, you know, you can get Open Records Act, you can get certain documents mm-hmm. um, now they redacted but you can still get a lot of information and that's how they found out that oh this was not a mistake some of their agents were in, you know instructed to do this and they did it um and of course you can't blame the cia for people using drugs because that's a personal choice but it it was done at a time when you know the black community was very vulnerable because of the um a lot of the stuff that was happening in those communities, the gentrification of these, those communities, and so people were being pushed out into the margins, uh, especially in big cities. Um, um, and so I wanted to do a piece that talked about the fact that the use of these drugs was self-destruction and to understand that as, you, as you're doing this, you're, you're self-destructing. And, um, and, and, and what I talked about was that, you know, lynching happened in the turn of the century of the 20th century. That was a big thing. You know, with a lot of lynching. The anti-lynching laws had to be passed in order to, to deal with them. Um, and and they didn't actually get passed across the country. Um, and so I was saying that the, the lynching of the 80s comes in the form of a mighty horse, which was heroin. That's what heroin was called, horse. Um, and to make people understand that this was a new way of neutralizing the black community. And of course, then we had the crack ep- epidemic in that did the same thing. So I was very interested in the idea of us being aware of what drugs were doing to our community. Wow.
0: I didn't read that part of it. I didn't read the CIA part of it. And this I mean, I guess I, there was the part about what well, was introduced. I just didn't hear by here. It feels like such a betrayal mm-hmm. of people who are supposed to be taken care of country
1: and not figuring out ways to you understand that they've done a lot of things that we don't particularly
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a hard part you know we talked about that in the last podcast um with doug swanson um about he did a big study on the texas rangers so which was a very interesting discussion and it and it raises some interesting questions it's how do we look at history Mm -hmm. in a way with our modern eye to reflect look back on what was done judge not judge examine and it becomes such an interesting time when the um, controlling the narrative exactly is very um, it's up for grabs right
1: I mean I think it's one of the reasons why I am so intent on making sure that the stories get told that need to be told Um, because As we look at these states who are trying to literally take us back to the 1950s when there was nothing really in the history books about black people, except I learned, I I can tell you having gone to school in the 1950s, we learned about two people, Harriet Tubman and George Washington Carver. And that was it. So Mm -hmm. all of the that I know, I know from my family, not from school. And what we're really, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead. What we're rapidly um, going back to is that time when children will not learn about the struggles of African-Americans because the struggles might make a white child feel bad, which I haven't found a single white child ever who has been um, upset by learning about history. In fact, it makes them more eager to learn more. Um, And, you know, I feel like these politicians are, are literally missing the point because first of all we live in the internet in a technological age when these children you bet a book they're gonna go find that book and it makes it more interesting of course and and the chances of them having read the book in the first place are so slim because you know kids aren't reading let's just put, let's just put it out there they're not reading any books um and so what you've done is you've essentially alerted them to the fact that they ought to read these books because? Mm-hmm. Jim, 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 I mean, after all, I mean, in my time, it was Catcher in the Rye. You know, we were, that was a banned book at one point, And, you know, everybody wanted to read Catcher in the Rye because of it. Um, so I'm really concerned that we, don't, that we don't tiptoe around this. I mean, as an artist, I feel I have a platform to talk about all kinds of things that maybe folks don't want kids reading. But, um, you know, I ran a cultural center for 20 years and I had kids from the age of five to the age of 15 um, in my program, and they learned all about their history that they never learned in school. And all it did was make them prouder to be themselves. So, you know, the idea that this is going to somehow damage our children's minds by knowing what is really going on in the world. No, it means that they're going to be really informed adults when they get to adulthood. And maybe they'll make better decisions than some of these people who are, you know, trying to erase the history.
0: What do you feel like your responsibility
1: as an artist is? Well, I I and I will say this is only me. I don't make I don't feel like there is a thing you can say artists are responsible for. I this is for me. For me, I feel I have a responsibility to um uplift my people as I'm doing my work. Um, I have a responsibility to tell the truth in my work. I have a responsibility to make sure that the work is always excellent, meaning, meaning the craftsmanship is excellent um, because I feel that that's part of this conversation about being an artist is are we putting out the best possible product for people to you know engage with? Um, and I also feel it's a responsibility, my responsibility to um, remember, you know, memory is, is very important. And I am one of those artists who wants to remember and to put out there what I am remembering and to um, also my history. You know, my history is really important to me. Um, and so I feel like that's always going to be a part of what I do. Do you, I mean, you've had, you you've had so much success.
0: But having been an artist... I'm mean, still an artist, but an artist's life is is not one happy cakewalk of success. No, um, <laughs> it's almost like if if you, there has to be struggles to be an artist.
1: Absolutely. It's like you can't do it without exactly. the struggle. At, 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 absolutely, and I mean, you know, I don't shy away from the struggle. I mean, you know, there's some people who are, you know, just depleted by. If it doesn't go right and they just don't know what to do, and uh, that doesn't ever phase me, Um, and and I can tell you that it's from you know going. I I mean, I went to art school in nineteen sixty seven. I'm sorry, in nineteen yeah nineteen sixty seven. Oh my god, long time ago. Um, I was the only the event baby. I know, I (laughs) know, very. I went to Rhode Island School of Design. That's where I started. I was the only black female in the entire school no black faculty. I can tell you in the six years of college, I've never had a black faculty member as an art professor. So, you know, I knew that I had to have some strength to do what I wanted to do because I wasn't seeing myself as I was doing it. Um, and so now things are a little bit better, not a lot better, because if you look at these art departments, they're still pretty white, pretty male, um, in many cases. Um, You have to, you have to have that inner strength if you're going to be an artist in this country because you're not with a lot of support. What was your biggest
0: challenge as an artist when you, when you literally were like, you know what, that's it.
1: I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do it. Never had had it. Never had that moment. In fact, it's one of the reasons why as an arts administrator, I kept being an artist. I did not, Like a lot of my friends who were in the business, we all, back in the 70s, were artists starting out. There was no school to go get arts administration training, and we were all artists. But I made a commitment to myself that I was never going to stop producing my work. So I committed to doing at least two shows a year um, that I would be in. They could be group shows, but I had to make work. And that has served me well because I don't think I would have been able to do what I'm doing now if I had not continue to be an artist a working artist throughout my entire arts uh administration career so I never had a moment of oh I'm not gonna I don't think I can do this anymore it's like nope nope I'm gonna do it I had two kids and I did you gonna it. do it yeah I had full-time jobs and I did it you know and that it's a juggling act but you know I did it well there's so many
0: we you know we talked to so many people who have overcome you know so many things mm-hmm. as far as um, and that's some of the feedback I get from people. It's like, wow, I really like when in a previous podcast, we had a, a guy who hit, um, rock bottom, literally rock bottom and kind of crawled his way back to the top. What, what challenge do you think? What was, did you ever have a rock bottom moment that you were like, really had to, had to struggle to crawl back up as well as, you know, and
1: how you did it? I think the only time that I was actually in, in a... See, I'm a really positive person. That's the first thing. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. I'm very blessed to have not been, you know, burdened with depression or things like that that many artists do have. I mean, that's, that's you know, a, a common thing is that there are, artists have depression and all kinds of other, you know, uh, mental issues. I'm not. I'm not that person. But I will say that when I got divorced that was a very difficult time because I was just beginning to, um, really take off as far as my art was concerned. Um, and I had these two kids, although I will say I had a, I I chose well because my ex-husband was not one of those guys that was going to disappear on me. Um, so he was, you know, actually very involved with my kids. So I didn't have that pressure, but of course I was the first person to get divorced in my family and that was a really big thing because you know my parents were um, not people who ever thought that that's something you did you know you you worked it out you know you went to counseling you got help you know you did whatever you had to do so that was difficult and I had a period there where I, of course I did do an installation about it <laughs> mm-hmm. it's called "Till Ma- till death Do us till death or divorce do us part, and that was an installation I did that my ex wasn't very happy about. But anyway, I tend to work things out through my art rather than to um, you know fall into a deep funk and not not be productive. Um, You know, the same thing happened when I had this this um, surgery, my 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 thyroid taken out. You know, I I was I was really at a point of you know what's happening to me. I've never had a physical ailment like this i did an installation about it and um worked out pretty well (laughs) a lot of people respond to it well um so i'm not I'm, i'm i i would say the the biggest challenge that i ever had in art being an artist was that i went into sculpture and women were not the sculptors you know what i mean it's like you you were constantly being faced by male instructors telling you why you're doing this you know uh What are you doing? You know, um, so that was a big, um, could have been a big obstacle, but I just saw it as a challenge. You know, it's like, oh, you're going to tell me I shouldn't be doing this. I'm only going to, I'm going to do it in spades, you know, so that's just who I am. (laughs) Yeah. Mindset is everything, isn't it? It is. I mean, it really is. And I mean, support. I will say this. It's mindset and support because I had parents who literally made me believe I could do anything I wanted to do. And when I was ready to quit graduate school, I did have a moment at that point when I was like, I've had it. Tired of these guys telling me that I shouldn't be doing this. I was out of money. I went home and I was telling my mom, I've had it. And she looked at me and she went, really? How much money do you need? And I told her how much. And my parents had not financed my education because I'd always gotten these these um scholarships and my mom said you've never asked us for a penny here she wrote the check out gave it she said now go back and tell those people to kiss your ass and so that's what I did you know but it was like it was her saying that no you're not going to let these people defeat you you know and money is not going to be the problem so she sent me back to Wisconsin and I finished up got my MFA and got out of there but that was the that was probably the lowest point that I'd ever gotten was was in graduate school well Vicki it has been a
0: pleasure having you on the show um I really enjoyed talking with you and per the usual I could talk with you for about two more hours about art and theory and history and race and feminism and everything else yes. All those things, all the light topics. We'll just go in religion and politics while we're at it. Why why? (laughs) not? Let's do that. Well, thank you again. How can people find you if they want to find you?
1: Well, I'm represented by Tally Dunn Gallery, and that gallery is located near the campus of SMU on Tracy Street. And they can go, Tally has my work, uh, and so they can go there to see the work. Um, And I do have a website, uh, which you're welcome to visit, too. Uh, which is Um and I will be showing from now on, you know, uh, uh, on occasion, not every year, but, you know, next year I'll have another one-person show at Tally Dunn Gallery, and, you know, come see me. Come see it. I am excited to come and see it. Thank you again for
0: being here. I always love talking to people who have been in art for a long time because You end up talking about the state of art, their art, where they want to go, where it's been, how it's changed. And she was um, a lovely person. I can't wait to have her back. And now, your insurance story of the week. I'm just going to hold this up one more time. We love our clients and customers. They're really what keep us in this business. We're not in this business because we love dealing with insurance companies. That's 100% for sure. It's always about the people. It's about the people, about the connections we make, the relationships we forge. And so to be honored with this really means a lot to us. So thank you, DFW. And we look forward to continue serving you in the best way possible. Appreciate that you guys keep showing up, keep listening. Thank you again, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Have a good one.